Morning. Hey, you can hear me. That's good. It's always a good start when you can hear me. Uh, it is a joy to be back here. Oh, hey, Mr. Sam, Miss Joyce. Hey, guys. Uh, I didn't see y'all earlier. Um, my heart is still knit to this place. I still love this church. Uh, I know a bunch of the people that I know from here are not here today. Uh, they're off at various celebrations, and that's exciting. Uh, but I'm glad to be back. Uh, when Jeff texted me, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago, a little more, said, hey, can you come and preach August 7th? I said, yeah, are you still doing Revelation? Because that's kind of awkward to step into the middle of somebody else teaching Revelation. And he said, no, we're going to take a break. I want you to pick a psalm. And I was like, pick a, a psalm, like any of the 150 of these things. He's like, yep. I was like, all right. So it, 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 there's a lot there. There's a lot of psalms there. And uh, it was a little overwhelming at first. So I constrained myself to a group of psalms and then uh, prayed and sought the Lord and read and uh, Ended up landing on a psalm that I thought would be easy to preach um, and ended up with a psalm that uh, I need to preach to myself a lot and that is deeper and richer than I expected when I started. Um, I don't suppose we should ever be surprised by the depth of God's word, um, but this one caught me off guard and I went from, ha- from am I going to have enough stuff to say to how am I going to get all this in? Uh, For those that don't know me, I didn't do this. I'm doing this backwards. My name is Nick Missios. I'm a member of Lakeview Christian Center down uh, on the South Shore. Uh, I was in Jeff's youth group way back in the day, Um, and I I love you people. So I'm Charlie and Violet's son-in-law, and uh, and really have a heart for this place. I want to see it grow, and and I hope that the word I bring you today, um, that the Holy Spirit would speak with it into your heart's encouragement um, and peace specifically. So, uh, I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 131 for me, please. It's a little short Psalm. Um, and we're going to read it together. I, uh, have any of y'all been following any of the pictures from this James Webb space telescope? Have y'all seen this thing? They just sent a space telescope way out far with like a crazy big lens. And, uh, and it's taking these pictures way out beyond what we could ever imagine. And it's providing these views that we, with our naked eyes, or even our, our telescopes here on Earth, would have no way of seeing these things with the depth and clarity we're seeing here. Um, and it would be silly of us to look at those things and try to expect to see them from here. And what we're going to get a glimpse of here is, is a, a psalmist, specifically David in this psalm, who has realized the folly of this. And who has contented himself to know his place in the universe. So I want, you to, I want us to read together. I'll be reading from the ESV. Um, psalm 131. This is a psalm of David. It's a psalm of ascents. These were a series of psalms that would be uh, sung together and celebrated together over the course of a pilgrimage. Um, uh, so let's read together. Uh, o Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you... Uh, Lord, that you want us to hope in you, that you have instructed us to place our hope in you. I thank you for the songs that we sang this morning, how perfectly some of them tied in with this message of hoping in you and resting with you. 
Lord, help us to do this. Help my mouth and my words to articulate the beauties of your word and help our ears together to all hear them. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Charles Spurgeon called this one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Uh, And how true that is. This is a very simple psalm. It is three verses. It was very easy to outline. It's got three points broken down verse by verse. One of them has some little sub points. It's all very straightforward from an outlining standpoint. But like I said, the more I started to dig, I was like, oh, this is... This is hard. This is hard to do. I could talk to you guys about this, but it's hard to do. Um, We start with David making a profession and then explaining the consequences of that profession and then moving towards an exhortation to the people that he's speaking to. So we're going to move through this verse by verse by verse. Uh, We're going to start with David's profession, move to the consequence that he communicates, and then to his exhortation to the people. Uh, In verse 1, David professes his humility. Um, And that's such an interesting thing. Does anybody else find that a little ironic? Uh, uh, Maybe even hypocritical when David says, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. Um, Is this like Uriah Heep, the character in uh, one of the villains, one of the one of the, the scoundrels in uh, Charles Dickens, David Copperfield, who says, I'm well aware that I am the humblest person going. Um, is this David speaking better of himself than he ought? Uh, and honestly, Charles Spurgeon uh, asks himself the same question as he interacts with this passage, this quote I've got here. He says, he begins with his heart, for that is the center, center of our nature. And if pride be there, it defiles everything, just as mire in the spring causes mud in all the streams. It is a grand thing for a man to know his own heart, so as to be able to speak before the Lord about it. It is beyond all things deceitful and desperately wicked, right? We know that Jeremiah talks about that. Who can know it? But David's professing to know it, so that's kind of odd. Who can know it unless taught by the Spirit of God. It is a still greater thing if, upon searching himself thoroughly, a man can solemnly protest unto the omniscient one that his heart is not haughty. That is to say, neither proud in his opinion of himself, contemptuous to others, nor self-righteous before the Lord, neither boastful of the past, proud of the present, nor ambitious for the future. So I guess my first question is, can we take David at his word? When David says, I'm not proud and haughty, I don't raise my eyes too high. We, we are, might want to ask, is that, is that true? Can anyone say that? And more importantly, can David say that? Because we know David's life story. We know his very interesting path from birth to death. Um, If this is true about David, then what does that tell us? And and here's the thing. I think we have to assume it's true in this moment because Scripture doesn't indicate this with any tone of of irony or uh, there's no contradiction of it in the Scripture. Sometimes we'll see someone profess to be proud or or to be humble, but they're proud. and, And Scripture makes that clear. But in this case, David's not contradicted by scripture at all. 
Uh, it seems that scripture is attesting that in this season of his life, at least, David is humble. Um, if this is true of David as he writes this, it tells us a few things. Uh, the first one, and, I, and it, I was talking about this with my kiddos on the way here. By the way, I appreciated, Sean, you and your daughter up here. Um, I loved that. I loved the messiness of it. And I love that your kid was like, I'm just going with him. Uh, my kids, my boys were like, do we have to sit and listen to you preach? Um, <laughs> just different strokes, I guess. Uh, but I, lo- I loved that moment. And we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later. But um, I was talking with my boys and, and we were talking about whether you can say this just on the ride here. And, and I wanted them to know it is good to appropriately recognize the evidences of grace, of God's grace in your life uh, when it comes to your growth and holiness. There is a humility in that because if I can attest that God is working in me, I can attest that it's his work and not my own. Um, Boasting obviously comes from, from within, but recognition of God's work in a way that I would never be successful in my own, that I would never grow on my own, is only, can only be a testament to God's faithfulness to growing us. So I want, I want us to not be afraid and not mire ourselves in constant false humility, which really, false humility says, oh, I could be better, I could be better, I could be better, without recognizing that you couldn't without the grace of God. I want us to be willing to step out of what feels like what we should do and always say, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. You're not good enough, but God is good and God is growing you. And if you see evidences of grace in your life, draw attention to it humbly and towards the God who's doing it. So that's the first thing I want us to notice. The second thing, uh, those of you who have ever done anything in terms of investing, financial investing, you'll see this statement. Past performance is not an indication of future results. Just because a certain stock or or mutual fund has done well in the past doesn't mean it's going to do well in the future. And if David is humble right here, I think we would do well to realize that his past performance is not indicative necessarily of his future results. Because if anything, we know that David can have a tendency to let his eyes wander where they shouldn't and can think himself better than others and can grasp at things that aren't his and display tremendous Uh, breathtakingly awful uh, lacks of humility. And I think we should realize that, that even as we recognize the growth that God is working in our lives, not to rest on our laurels and feel like I have accomplished everything and I'm perfectly humble now, that this is an ongoing journey. And that's the third part here is that humility isn't something we arrive at. It's a flavor that seasons our whole lives. It colors our lives. Um, And it's an ongoing effort. We are always working to keep ourselves and God in the proper perspective to keep us humble in our hearts and before others and and before God. I'm going to talk about those three areas that David kind of outlines here. First, with my heart is not lifted up. Um, This is the humility in David's heart. And and, uh, most commentators, or many at least, believe that when David's writing this psalm, It's a response to accusations from Saul and his folks that he is trying to usurp the throne. So David's been anointed the future king, and that has Saul freaked out. 
and Saul's pursuing David and, and accusing him of trying to take over the throne when, when David is not in this situation. Uh, David is innocent of that in, in this moment. And what David's attesting to is that his heart knows its proper place in the world. And in light of that, in light of having been anointed the future king of Israel, um, I am in awe of humility in that moment. That is, this is supernatural humility that a man who, has, like I said, we've seen struggles with this in his life in the future is able to humbly know his place in the world. Um, and, and there is a humility in knowing God's season for us, knowing where God has us. And this could be um, in terms of your place in employment or in your family or in service in the church, or there's a variety of places where this could show up. But there's a humility, I think, in knowing where God has you and trusting his wisdom to have you in that place, in that season, and not grasp. You know, if, I'm the, if I know, like, I'm just looking at myself, like, if I knew I'm going to be king eventually, man, there is, there is a smugness I'm going to have to fight. There is an arrogance, there's a presumption I'm going to have to fight against, um, and I think it's, it's a testimony to the Holy Spirit's work in David to keep him humble in this season. So that's the first thing that we see is that David's heart is not lifted up above where it should be. And his eyes are not raised too high. Um, again, most commentators would, would point to this as being an interactive. This is the second, humility towards my neighbor. So Spurgeon talked about this in his quote. It starts in the heart and it exudes towards our neighbors. And this is probably the best, most readable litmus test for our humility. If you want to know if you're a humble person, if God is showing evidence of humility in your life, look at your interactions with others. Look at your neighbor, look at your spouse, at your kids. Um, am I interacting with them in a way that communicates that an outside observer, if they were to watch me with my wife, with my kids, with my neighbor, with my um, friends in, in the body of Christ with my coworkers would say that guy values other people higher than himself. Is that, is that evidenced in my actions? Um, one of my big verses that I, I love, it's probably my life verse if I had to say, is First John three eighteen, where John exhorts his readers to love not just in speech, but in action, in truth. And this humility is exemplified in our actions. Am I living in a way that people would see me preferring others, putting others ahead of myself? Um, you know, this verse in, in, that Paul writes here, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Servanthood is an example, an evidence of humility. When we are humble, we are happy to serve others because we value them above ourselves. If my eyes are lifted up above you, I'm looking down at you, and I don't consider your problems as important as mine or as urgent as mine, and my energies are going to go to my own situation and not your own situation. Humility looks at you and says, we are... We are both human beings, and I'm going to prefer you in this moment. I'm going to count my own interests lower than yours and serve you instead of serving myself. 
Again, this is probably the single best litmus test. Am I serving others? And when I serve others, what am I expecting? And what do I do if I don't get what I expect? Um, If I stay up late and clean the kitchen spotlessly, which I have never done perfectly. um, (laughs) But if I stay up late and bust my butt and clean the kitchen uh, and my wife wakes up and for some reason just doesn't say thank you, um, am I hurt? Am I upset by that? Did I do it because I wanted the recognition, because I wanted the praise for that thing that I did? Or did I do it because I love this person and I love my family and I want to serve them? Where is my heart even in my service? Do I bring an arrogance to my service that deserves, demands to be recognized and applauded and thanked? If so, that tells me that my service itself may just be pride in disguise. It might be another example of false humility. Um, But I really want to focus on this last point, this last element of humility that David talks about. uh, Because I think this is where David really, this is where the work gets done. Um, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Uh, This is the really hard one. (laughs) Um, At least for me, maybe not for you. But for me, this is where uh, the rubber meets the road. For some reason, it is easier to remind ourselves to be humble with respect to others than it is to be humble towards God. Um, And here, the specific area with which David is concerned is humility toward God concerning his ordering of the universe, um, the mysteries of God, the secret things that God knows. Um, And David has, has had to wrestle, and we'll talk about this in a moment, to make himself not concerned with those things, to not grasp at those things. Um, And again, we go back to that kind of irony here because David is claiming to know the condition of his heart, which is in and of itself unknowable. It is one of these secret things that only God can know, which is why I think we have to believe that the Holy Spirit has revealed this to David in his moment of writing this. This This is the inspired word of God and the Holy Spirit has pointed this out to David and wants to uh, point to the people of Israel the consequences of this. But this is the conversation that Job has with God. This is the why are things the way they are conversation. And, you know, we, we see this verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever so that we may follow all the words of this law. And you see right there, Moses by the Holy Spirit, delineating two categories of things that we can be worried about. There's the things of the Lord that are secret, and there are the things of men. The things of the Lord and the things of men, the things that are revealed. And what Moses is saying and what David is attesting is that it is not my job to be worried about the secret ways that God ordains the universe. That is not my responsibility. One of my favorite quotes in the history of Christian teaching by J. Vernon McGee here. This is God's universe, and he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. You don't have a better way, by the way. Um, But even if you did, (laughs) you don't have any place to do it. This is God's world. He 
runs the universe. I don't know how to power the stars. I don't know how to keep the planets in orbit. I don't know the right number of different types of creatures to keep the biological world in balance. I don't know how to make my own heart beat. If I were in charge of ordering the universe, it would fall apart so quickly that none of us would recognize it happened. We'd all just die. Like, instantly we'd all be dead if I were in charge of the universe and you wouldn't be any better at it than I am. So don't get so proud of yourself. I don't know how to order history in my life to maximize God's glory and my good. And if I could figure it out, I don't have the brain power, the bandwidth to know how to take the hundred billion people or so who have ever lived and organize their lives in a way that maximizes God's glory and my good. This is beyond my comprehension, and it is best that I not concern myself with it, because I'm only going to mess it up if I try. God has graciously removed that responsibility from me, because the moment that I demand God's prerogative, I demand responsibility for accomplishing that prerogative, and that is a weight that neither you nor I can carry. Of course, We don't ask these things in the easy seasons. We don't ask, God, why did I get that raise? (laughs) Why did my kid get straight A's again? Um, We don't ask, we don't ask these seasons when these questions in the seasons where things are going great, do we? We just trust God with that. It's like, oh, you've got this, God. You have things on point. We never question in seasons of plenty. Um, This is harder to apply in the seasons of lack, in the seasons of challenge, um, when you lose your job and you're not sure how you're going to provide, when you get a cancer diagnosis, when you have miscarriage after miscarriage, when a loved one walks away from the faith, when a spouse is unfaithful, when a storm destroys your home, when it seems like an enemy is sabotaging you at every turn, Those are the moments when we look at God and say, surely God, surely there had to be a better way, a different way, a wiser way. Are you sure you know what you're doing up there? And it's in those moments that we need this passage the most. We need to remember that God's ways are above our ways. He orders our steps and that he loves us and he's doing history for his glory and our good. And listen, this is easy to say standing up here preaching. Keith, Pastor Keith and I down down on the South Shore, we've talked about this a few times, the differences between preaching and counseling. Um, And I want you to understand that I'm preaching right now and not counseling. Um, because everything I'm saying right now is biblical and justified. I can make a case from everything, for everything I said from Scripture. Um, but if you and I were sitting down across from each other at coffee, I wouldn't sound like this. And I want you to know that. Um, this is all true, but when we're counseling, and I know this, heart, this church has a heart for counseling. Uh, when we're counseling one another, we can't start here. If you start here, you're going to break hearts. Um, and you're going to turn off ears. When we counsel, we need to meet a person in their suffering and walk alongside them. 
and read the situation and read the heart and read the ears and know when someone's ready to hear this and accept it. Um, we can be tempted to start here um, and just kind of start with, well, you just need to trust God. God's in charge. Um, let me know how that works out for you. Okay. And we're still, we can, we can be tempted to try to say what God is doing in the situation. I've done this and I've had people do this to me. And when we do that, we do the very thing that David's decrying here. We're saying, well, I, I bet you God is doing this. And in that moment, I'm, I am presuming to speak for God's ordering of history. God's doing this in your life. You don't know the secret things of the Lord. Let me tell you the secret things that the Lord is doing in your life. We need to make sure that when we counsel one another, when we care and we comfort one another, that we observe and we model and we practice this humility that David is attesting to here. Um, or else we can't care for one another as well. So with that said, let me be really clear here. What I'm not saying is that if you right now are in the midst of a trial that seems disorienting, you just need to make up your mind to trust God and it's all going to be better. Um, I'm not saying that if you were humble, this wouldn't be a problem. Or that, even worse, your confusion is a sign of your arrogance before God and your lack of humility and your sin. Don't hear any of that, please, in what I'm saying this morning. Because um, honestly, this humility itself is not some ginned up human-powered humility. This is supernatural humility modeled by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and walked in in faith, and not automatic. You know, I read from Philippians earlier, that same passage continues, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with, the God, with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As this is the great exchange, this is the gospel. Mankind from Adam back, Adam on, has arrogantly grasped at godness. We want to grab at that power and sovereignty over the universe. All the while, God in his sovereign plan ungrasps. <laughs> And he reaches down to us and he descends to us. He humbly comes to us and condescends to us to make us like him, to accomplish the thing that we thought we could do by grabbing. He's like, no, 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 I've got to grab you. This humility is a fruit of the spirit. When we, when we run through the list in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we can feel like humility is missing there. But that word gentleness is really humility, okay? I think gentleness is a good translation. I'm not trying to like, pretend that I'm smarter than all the Bible translators out there. Um, but it's a complex word that, that carries humility in it. Timothy George, in his commentary on Galatians, he says, this word connotes a submissive and teachable spirit toward God that manifests itself in genuine humility and consideration towards others. You see all three of those points right there, right? Teachable before God, humble in heart, and considerate towards others. 
This humility is not a human product. This is supernatural. We don't decide to just be humble. We come before God and we ask him to reveal himself and to give us a humble heart before him. Is that clear? Good. All right, I got to move. Verse 2. What happens when we have this humility, when we walk in humility before God, is that David finds contentment at the Lord's side. This was clearly, by the way, not automatic for David, because the first thing he says is that he has calmed and quieted his heart. If something has to be calmed and quieted, what do we know about it in the not-too-distant past? It was neither calm nor quiet. David was wrestling with God for this humility, okay? was wrestling, and he uses this imagery like a weaned child with his mother. And my wife lives in the birth world. She does all the birthy things. She loves mothering. And so I sat down with her one morning before work. I was like, tell me about weaning. What is it? What's it like? Um, and we were wrestling through what does he mean? Does he mean like a child who's just been freshly nursed, like just finished eating, kind of milk drunk baby type thing? Um, but it seems like this word really means done, like done nursing. Um, first of all, let's notice here, the maternal imagery of God. Um, God made man male and female in his likeness. And it takes both of us to image God completely. And this mothering side of thing, it's the mother hen also that Jesus talks about, you know, gathering the chicks under the wing. It is a side of God that we need to recognize and honor as God's image revealed in women. Um, It takes all of us to do this. Uh, That said, the weaning process is not an automatic one. I have one girl and two boys. My girl just weaned, just like, was like, all right, I'm done. And she just kind of stopped nursing and was ready to eat solid foods and everything. My boys weren't. Um, There was a struggle there, one one more than the other, um, a fighting to make sure that they got nourishment. Um, it can be a wrestling match. It's kind of like the one that David's talking about. He's had to quiet himself in this. Um, There's a contentment here that David's describing that knows and it trusts the sovereign provision of the Lord and doesn't feel that need to wrestle with him anymore. That's what David's communicating with him. I'm not going to grasp for those things and demand to know how you're going to take care of me. I'm going to rest by your side. I love this commentary here. Um, as a weaned child, not one that has only just begun to be weaned, but an actually weaned child lies upon its mother without crying impatiently and craving for its mother's breast, but contented with the fact that it has its mother. Like such a weaned child is his soul upon him. His soul, which is by nature restless and craving, is stilled It does not long after earthly enjoyment and earthly good that God should give these to it, but it is satisfied in the fellowship of God. It finds full satisfaction in him. It is satisfied, satiated in him. Look, when my my boys or my girl, when they were finally weaned, they didn't need their mom any less, right? It wasn't like, oh, I'm weaned now. I'm ready to go out and get an apartment, you know? They, they still need their mom. Um, but there is a depth of relationship that is different there. 
They've moved on to the next phase of relationship that doesn't just see the source of food and crave and grasp at that. Um, There's an understanding and trust that the mother will provide in the season in which it is most wisely deemed by the mother in the timing that the mother deems fit. And beyond that, there's just a peace in dwelling next to the mother. There's an enjoyment of the relationship besides just provision. But there's a comfort and contentment in the mother herself. And that's what David is attesting to here. He's saying, my soul next to God isn't just grasping for the things that he can provide, for my provision, for my needs, for my sustenance. I'm not demanding to know when I'm going to eat next, literally or figuratively, I don't think. Uh, I'm resting and trusting in, in God, by his side, in fellowship and companionship with him in a way that is richer and deeper and more substantial and more provisional. <laughs> what does that lead to? Well, it leads to hope. And so David goes from saying, I have humbled myself before God because I've humbled my heart is content by his side to, hey, everybody, let's hope in the Lord. So he goes from these declaratives to an imperative at this moment. I've done this, so I've experienced this. Now let's do this. Side note, for those of you who want to lead in any capacity, whether it's in the church, in your homes, in your workplace, Uh, wherever it is. Um, Notice that David had to walk through this first. David had to model by walking this. He doesn't just say, hey, you guys should go do that. Um, David walks through this wrestling match and then is kind of like, hey, come on in, the water's fine. Hope in the Lord with me. I'm here. Um, You know, guys, ultimately, we, we place our hope in who we think runs the universe. That's where our hope rests. And if y'all want to just, y'all don't mind me for a second. I'm just going to preach to myself for the rest of this. Okay, y'all are more than welcome to eavesdrop. But this is me and Jesus right now, okay? Uh, Where do I locate my hope in the midst of trials? Do I put my hope in my ability to scheme, to plan, to do, to accomplish, to work, to figure out? Am I hoping in my own abilities and my own efforts and my own wisdom? Do I trust in myself to make my path straight? Or do I trust in others? Do I put my hope in the actions of others, in the reactions of others? If this person would only do this, if my wife, if my husband would only be like this, if my boss just knew, if my pastor would only, if my kids would just listen, if my friend would understand, if I, if I had more friends, if people would come and be nice to me. 
We put these conditions in which we'll have hope in God. I heard a very wise man just yesterday say, we need to remove the conditions under which we will act biblically. Um, we put these conditions of other people's behavior and other people's actions around our hope. I would be hopeful if these people would do these things. My hope is in them. But really, even if you listen to your voice, I would have hope if my spouse would do this thing. Well, who's got the plan there? Well, that's me again. I'm trusting you to do the things. Maybe I just don't feel like doing it. But at the end of the day, I'm the one with the sovereign plan. I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life that benefits me. Even in putting my hope in others, I'm really just putting my hope in myself, in my own ability to order the universe. And if I could move you guys all like chess pieces, then everything would work. If you guys knew what to do, as I know what you should be doing, then the universe would be ordered perfectly. In that moment, I'm not only showing my arrogance before God that he doesn't know what to do in your life and doesn't know at the pace in which to sanctify you, I'm also viewing you as a tool in my life to be used. I'm elevating myself above you. I'm the person, you are the object. And if you could be put in this exact place, then the real main character of the story could get what he wants. So you see, even the arrogance in myself in putting my hope in the actions and attitudes of others. Guys, When I grasp for these levels of control, I forget who's in charge of the universe. Um, my wife and I went on a trip last week, and we used one of these rental car services where like, you borrow somebody else's car. It was great, uh, except for where I parked in the wrong spot and got it towed, but that was different. Um, it was an adventure. By the way, you want to figure out trying to trust God's sovereignty in a moment? I'm like, I'm preaching on this Sunday. I'm preaching on this Sunday. I'm preaching on this Sunday. What are you doing? Um, but this car, so I guess a year and a half ago, I got a car that didn't have a back, that had a backup camera. Until then, I, my car never had a backup camera. And it's funny how quickly you become dependent on these things. And I got in, and my wife could tell you, like, I was disoriented at first. I was like, how do you park a car? Because I was just, I was so, I'd, I'd learned to trust this thing. And in this moment, when I all of a sudden had to do it, I realized how inadequate I was for the task, how I really can't see the bumper of my car. I don't know how close I am. And my wife is getting out and helping to guide me. And it's like, oh, you know what? This is the difference between how I see the universe and how God sees the universe. He's got this perfect thing in which I can hope and trust. Otherwise, it's me doing this the whole time and grasping wildly and trying to see perfectly what I can't see. I'm not built for that. You're not built for that. I think one of the reasons why this is so difficult is that we have to rely on God's timing. Um, how many of y'all are doers? How many of you just like to just do things when it makes sense to do them? I'm a doer. Um, this hope word that David uses, this, this Hebrew word, yachal, is, is a waiting. It's a waiting hope. To wait for. Um, extend a period of time in a place or state, implying a hope of resolution to some situation. 
linger, hope in, expect, looking to, to await eagerly a future event. I think sometimes we, we fail to hope in God because we lack the patience that hope requires. We want to do, we want the answer now, and God's timing is different from ours. And so we, we impatiently grasp at what seems wise to us instead of waiting for what God knows is wise. But in that, there's a restlessness. If I'm constantly having to do, I can't rest by the side of my Savior. Um, I appreciate that we sang that song uh, just about the, the, the being with God and, and the communion that's in there. When I grasp for control of the universe, I put my hope in myself. I put the ordering of the world in my hands, and then I have to take responsibility for it and do it. Guys, God built the universe in a way that works best if he's in control and we trust. And when we strive against the grain of the universe, we get splinters real fast. It's exhausting to run against that constantly. Sometimes we think of God as this killjoy who builds rules in to limit our fun. The reality is that God's commands are for our good. And when he calls us to place our hope in him, he knows that hoping in ourselves is ultimately futile and exhausting. And so whenever I talk about any mandates that God gives us, I always want to highlight two things. One is that we obey God's mandates because he is God and we are not. He gets to tell us what to do. And that's important to know. But I also want you to know that he's your loving father who puts rules in place that are for your good. We put rules in our kids' lives that are for their good. Why do they need to listen? Well, because I said so sometimes. But why did I say so? Because if you do that, stupid hurts. And I don't want you hurt. What God's calling us here is to rest in him, to rest by him, to hope in him like that contented child sitting next to his mom, head on the shoulder, resting with her and trusting that the next meal is going to come, the next wise decision is going to be made. And not to demand and demand and demand and wrestle. There is such sweet communion that comes when we trust in God. And it is such a restful change of pace from our strivings and our doings. Um, so what do we do with this? I like this passage, by the way, because when you get to the application point, by the way, like he just wrote the application point. So just do what David said, okay? Uh, <laughs> hope in the Lord. Place your hope in that situation you're wrestling with right now, in that struggle you're having, in that season of uncertainty, in that trial you're facing. Hope in the Lord. And bring that hope to the world. Bring that hope to others. We are in a world full of striving. We are surrounded by people who are striving and who are exhausted, 
who are worn out. Jesus has hope and rest for their souls. There is a God who ordered the universe. He knows what's best. And he calls us to trust in him and to bring others and point them to him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you hold the future. Lord, that you order history, that you are wise and sovereign and omniscient over all things. God, we could not begin to do your job, and yet we, from our first father, have fought to do so futilely. God, we pray that you would give us humility by the power of your spirit. Show us our place in relation to you. Show us your wisdom, your perfection. Lord, that you're not just omniscient, but you're lovingly omniscient. You know what's best for us. You want what's best for us, and you can do what's best for us. Lord, may we rest in that. May we know the kindness of your sovereign power, that you love us perfectly, better than we love ourselves, better than we know what we think we know about ourselves. Lord, thank you for your care for us. Thank you that you are our Father You are our mother. You curl us by your side. You comfort us. You delight in being with us and call us to delight in being with you. That is, Lord, that is breathtaking in its beauty and simplicity. Thank you, Lord, for that image and then for the truth that that image shows us. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't do this last time I was here. I forgot about this, but let's do our great commission together. So everybody stand with me, please. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thank you, guys.